Hello, and welcome to Learn to Love, a show where we talk all about things you can do to build a better, stronger relationship. Our team is powered by passionate volunteers looking to bring forward the best of what they know to help you stay together. Love is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Our podcast, articles, and videos feature insights from the latest research on relationship psychology, intimacy, conflict resolution, parenting, and more. You don't need to go in blind and make the same mistakes as those around you. Check us out on our brand new website at learnlove.ca or listen on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. Thank you for joining us in our vision to create healthier relationships and stronger families. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you joining me for this brand new episode on the Learn to Love podcast, where we'll continue our discussion from the last episode all about a cognitive neuroscience approach to understanding feelings. We'll then talk a bit about meaning and perspective. It's going to be a really, really interesting episode. And we'll learn from the end of this that Everyone has a story, and while we can't choose to control the things around us, we can choose to react the way that we react to them. If you want more from us, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Learn to Love Media, or you can find us on Pinterest or YouTube at Learn to Love. We're running a really exciting campaign for our Instagram. Uh, followers so if you check out our content on instagram you can see our link in the the description will give you free access to our brand new course love smarter not harder on udemy so check out our instagram it's learn to love media l-e-a-r-n number two media um for sorry l-e-a-r-n number two l-o-v-e media Um, And in that link in the description, in the description, you can get free access to our brand new course. And we're looking for pilots. So I'd love to hear what you think about the course. Please let me know. And if you have any general feedback about the show so far, you can always send an email to contact at learnlove.ca. So in the last episode, we talked about this idea, this cognitive neuroscience approach to understanding feelings. So what what is that? Basically, we said that every experience has components, okay, components. So we can break it down. For example, if you're going for a walk in the forest, the components there would be the trail, the sun, the clouds, the trees, the wind, the colors, okay, who you're with. And any one of those can influence very largely your experience. So Feelings are essentially how we feel in any situation was the sum of the associated feelings which each with each of those components. So, okay, so an experience has a lot of different components. We associate different feelings with each of those components, okay? So, for example, the tree makes us feel peace, okay? The sun and the sky makes us feel calm. Um, the wind makes us feel relaxed. And then when you add that all up together, um, the sum is peace and relaxed and calm. Now, if, for example, there was um, an experience when you were lost in the forest and you were on your own, the trees might make you feel 
anxious so that the feeling that you associate with the component of those trees being there would be anxious. And if there's a very strong feeling of, of anxiety in the situation, um, like, uh, sorry, a strong feeling of anxiety that goes alongside with seeing a forest, you will feel anxious, okay? Anxious in that scenario. And what this does is it hints to our discussion on trauma. So we said that trauma was, is when you have an experience that is so intense, the emotions are so intense that your brain can't scrub it. It can't take the emotions away from that experience. And where does this come from? The idea that when we're young, okay, there are a lot of things that bother us and even things that bothered you last week or last month. And when you thought about them at the time, you felt maybe very intense emotion. But when you think about it later, you don't feel as intense that emotion. You think of it with the emotion scrubbed, kind of removed. And that's part of the way that memory goes from our short-term memory um, which largely resides in our hippocampus, to our long-term memory, which can lie in the anterior cingulate cortex um, and some other areas. So we, we talked about trauma being um, an associated feeling that is so significant that you your body just can't scrub the feeling away from it. So that trigger, okay, the component is the trigger would make you feel very, very anxious and your blood will start feeling, you know, like pumping really fast and your heart racing and sweating and out of breath, okay, taking, like breathing heavy. These are all reactions to a threat, okay? Now, the thing is that that threat isn't actually there, um, but, but we feel the reaction anyway, okay? And it's a survival skill because if, if something made us feel very, very threatened, okay, or very insecure, insecure means not feeling secure, okay, before, our body's going to want to remember that whenever something that reminds us of this comes again, we're going to get ready to fight it, to react to it, okay? If you think about it, this can often be very good for survival because, like, for example, let's say that you were going for a walk in a deep forest and a lion or like let's say a tiger just popped out of the trees in front of you and your heart started racing and you didn't know what to do and you just, I mean, you couldn't outrun a tiger, but you can certainly outclimb a tiger if the adrenaline's really pumping and suddenly, you know, you find yourself higher up on a tree. Um, the forest now is going to maybe make you feel anxious so that you're weary. Okay, anxious means, you know, our hearts are going faster. It means that we're more aware of our surroundings so that, you know, we may notice that, uh, you know, the cheetah doesn't appear again. Um, or alternatively, it will just scare us so much that we won't want to go into the forest in the first place um, because, like, we just, like our body's warning us, don't go there, that's not safe. Now, the thing is that often our reactions to things are in proportion to what's going on around us. Um, and what I mean by this is we talked about this in habits. People normally get used to things that persist after a while. So if, if you have something for a long time, it doesn't feel as significant as it once was because we just adjust to the dynamic, to the situation. So if you don't have a lot of, I don't mean this in a negative way, but if you don't have a lot of real problems in your life, okay, like any very, very significant physical things to respond to, for example, like having enough food on the table, our body may then be more, I don't want to say sensitive, 
but more easily rattled by new things that come up, okay? If we never have anything that's so intense, then things, smaller things can seem very intense to us. Um, and, and the reason I say this is just to encourage everyone to have a hobby, okay? We all want to have something that we can work on, that we can work towards to keep us occupied and keep us engaged and keep us out there in the world interacting with other people and just being more aware, okay? Because the more communication we have and the more that we're involved, um, the more that we're doing something that brings us meaning, we're going to talk about meaning um, like very, very soon in this episode, um, the more prepared we can be for when adversity strikes because we have a support group and we're also we're hearing stories from other people. We're just more aware of what's going on, okay? The opposite of that is like if you're always at home and you're not really like doing anything that's really challenging you, um, your, your brain um, is always expecting some things to be bad, okay? And this comes from happiness studies where no matter what, uh, somebody was doing, okay, they, and, we, and we talked about this in habits, they always rated their experience like 7 out of 10, okay, which means that whatever's going on, you get used to it, so if you get very, very comfortable, okay, and then something like marginally bad happens, and to other people it wouldn't be so bad, it may feel very, very extreme to you, just because it's so different to the comfort that you were having before, so I don't, I don't say that you should intentionally make yourself uncomfortable, I just say that you should be more involved, more engaged with society, more aware um, of like events going on with peers and interacting with them and have something to keep you busy so that when adversity does strike, if it strikes for you, I mean, hopefully not, but if it does, you have some sort of support group or hobby that you can fall back on, okay? Um, so we mentioned machine learning as well in the last episode. I just want to touch on that because, well, what is machine learning? Um, basically, we, we talked about this a bit. It's when you give a computer a whole bunch of columns and rows of data and you ask it to figure out the trend going on with the data, like to group the data together based on things that are more similar or things that are less similar. And the different methods of doing this, like supervised or unsupervised, like support vector machines, or um, you don't have to worry about that. It's just, it's basically finding associations between groups of data. And if you think about it, that's kind of what your mind is doing too, because we have all these experiences and we have to decide if it's good or bad and how we're going to remember that experience and how we're going to group it uh, in our head as a positive or a negative experience. And which part of the components we're going to put the most weight on. We talked about the, the significance of weight, like how much we feel that component how much that feeling is going to skew the rest of the feelings, okay? And also the components that we notice and don't notice. We're going to notice those things that we put weight on, but we're not going to notice the things that we don't put a lot of weight on. Uh, and all of this also affects our memory. Um, so it's just really important to think about this. It's going to show you that things are all about perspective because if you think very positively about your partner, you're going to remember positive traits of your partner and times when your partner was very positive to you. But if you are thinking very negative about your partner, you're suddenly going to start putting a lot more weight on negative components about them and have very strong feelings, okay? Because like, let's say that 
2% of what your partner does is bad? Will you perceive it to be bad? If you put 98% of the weight on the 2%, it's going to feel like the whole experience with your partner is bad. Okay? If you felt happy most of the time, but uncomfortable a little bit of the time, and you put a lot more weight on the times you're uncomfortable, well, then you're just going to start feeling uncomfortable when you think about your partner. So this is so important to think about how we classify things, and it does affect our memory, okay? It really, really does. So if you if you think of your, like, like just something I think in general is that people feel what they expect to feel. And I know that there are cases where this doesn't apply, but it's a general principle. If you if you expect your partner, if, if you think and you believe that your partner is a good person, you're going to start to see them from a lens of them being a good person. You're going to put more weight on good things that they do and be more receptive to that and encouraging. And as they start doing good things, you can point them out and you can nurture them and your partner will enjoy having the feeling of, of doing good. Okay. And they'll know what it's like to Remember, you guide them too, right? So if they're doing good and you smile and you're very positive and receptive to that, you're going to help them feel good about doing good, being good, okay? And hopefully that's going to continue. But if you come with a very negative lens, okay, you put a lot of weight on your partner being negative, it really doesn't matter how much good they do. You're just not going to notice that. And I strongly believe that most of what partners do for the other goes unnoticed. So you really have to ask yourself, what are they doing that I'm not noticing? Okay. And the same goes for things like, remember, if you want to buy a new car, for example, suddenly you see that car everywhere. You see in the new cars, you notice them. If you want new shoes, suddenly you notice everyone else's shoes. If you want new glasses, suddenly you notice everyone else's glasses when you would have never noticed them before. Okay. And what that means is people notice what they put weight on what they expect to, what they're thinking about. So try to judge favorably. Try to think of your partner from a favorable lens, okay? Look for the good in what they're doing. Encourage the good. Also with your kids, try to think that they're on your team. Remember, we talked about this in teamwork. It's like you two against the world. You're on the same team. Think about how is what they're doing being on my team. And remember, I, I again, most of what partners are doing is not noticed. So if you try to judge favorably, then maybe you can see 90% of what your partner's trying. And if you try to judge very negatively, maybe you'll only actually see 10% of what your partner's doing. So try to judge favorably. You'll notice more. You'll feel better. And you'll help your partner. You'll help your partner feel better too. Okay. Another thing that we talked about is brain size, how our brains are big primarily for social interaction and because it takes a lot of brain power to understand emotion um, and to socialize with people. And emotion is so important and an understanding of it to function and thrive in society and with our partners. But how do we understand feelings? We talked about this in conflict resolution. It's much simpler for our brains to use mirror neurons to understand what our partner is feeling than to try use like the machine learning approach where they map different parts of their face to different, you know, different components and then try to derive, which we do a little bit too, um, 
And that's feeling what the partner's feeling, okay? But a, a shortcut to that is to use mirror neurons. So we see our partner, and what we do is we, our neurons in our brain play a very similar pathway, in a sense, a neural firing sequence to what we, what our brains think the partner's feeling. And this is called mirror neurons because in the sense that the neurons in the two brains are mirroring each other. So you want to understand what the other person is feeling. You look at them, your brain mirrors a very similar uh, firing path to what the other person's feeling. And then it's going to think, how did that firing make me feel? And based on that, it's going to suggest to you how your partner is feeling. And you're going to assume that if you had a very similar neural firing event, if it made you feel a certain way, your partner's probably feeling a certain way too. So what I'm going to say about this is just to be aware of two things. The one is that our brains don't always do a perfect mirror of our partner. So, you know, it may make us feel a certain way, but our partners have different lived experience. So it may make them feel differently about it. Okay, we don't always know what's going on until we ask. Don't just assume. We're scared to ask sometimes because we feel like we have to be perfect or we have to know. But I'm telling you right now, the problem is often like way bigger if you just think about it and keep it in your head. If you just ask, okay, you'll understand it for what it really is. And I think, again, remember, like you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to automatically know. Just by asking, your partner is going to be like, wow, they really care about me. You know, they asked about me. That's fantastic. And also it's going to help you feel better too, because so many of us are worried about things that aren't actually problems. Like we think that it's a problem for our partner, but it's not. We just have it wrong because we assume that they react the same way to us through events, or we assume that just because they look or act a certain way, it means this. You don't know until you ask. Now, talking about those mirror neurons, we can actually do something really interesting with them. Because our partner is going to stimulate a very similar neural firing pathway to us, okay, we can actually plant emotions in their brain. Like a, a little bit in a sense that we can model what we want to see from our partners, which we talk about in, in conflict resolution. If you smile to someone and it's a real smile, okay, and you do it in a very loving way, our partner is often going to smile back because those neurons are going to fire in their brain. It's going to make them feel good and they're going to smile. And it's for this reason that emotions are contagious. So model what you want to see, guys. People often treat us depending on the neurons, the mirror neurons that we fire, that, that we encourage to be fired in their brain. Okay, so if you want your partner to feel good, okay, if you want your partner to be very loving to you, be very loving to them. If you want your partner to smile, try smile more yourself. It's easier to smile when someone's smiling next to you. And boy, it is easy to feel bad if someone is feeling bad next to you. So by modeling what you want to see, okay, taking responsibility for that, we can create the environment that we want to live in. Super. So that pretty much sums up the that article cognitive neuroscience approach to understanding feelings on the blog uh, we talk a little bit more about anthropology there um like how it's easier to get scared of a snake than a car basically what that is is that some associated feelings to components are i, I don't want to say directly part of our genetics but very much a part of our brains 
already. Um, so if a parent gets scared of a snake in front of a child, the child is much more likely to be scared of that snake moving forward than for something else. For example, if a parent shows fear of a car, a child may not feel scared of the car right away. It's actually quite hard to get children scared of moving cars, um, but much easier so to get them scared of snakes, tarantulas, and other things which may not even exist, at least in a poisonous form, on their continent. So that's really interesting. And if you want to learn more about that, you can definitely check out our blog. Now, I said that we would talk about meaning. I brought up the idea of hobbies. I want to bring up meaning here. And an idea presented to me from the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who is an Austrian psychiatrist who um, passed away actually in the 90s. But he's very, very, very interesting. He was working as a psychiatrist in Vienna um, in the 1940s, late 19, sorry, in the 1930s, um, and then he became a prisoner um, in World War II. Um, he actually was in the Holocaust in multiple concentration and death camps, including Auschwitz, um, and later was liberated and wrote a whole bunch of really interesting books. There's Man's Search for Meaning, there's Yes to Life in Spite of Everything, which we touched upon on the show and the blog already. Um, and more, and he, he, these are all theories that he came up with from before the Holocaust in the 1930s. He actually had his first manuscript for Man's Search for Meaning already written um, when he was captured, and um, luckily he survived through the war so that he could write it down and share these ideas with us. So something really interesting um, that Viktor Frankl talks about when he talks about meaning is he says that meaning is suffering plus justification. He puts out a formula, meaning equals suffering plus justification. Now, isn't that so interesting? Meaning equals suffering plus justification. He's basically saying that suffering, you need to have suffering to make meaning, and you need to have essentially a justification of suffering to have meaning. Let's break this down further. What is meaning? Meaning is like something that we do that makes us feel really, really fulfilled. Something that we really enjoy doing that makes us feel like we're doing something that matters. Okay? Suffering is something that we really don't enjoy doing. Okay? It's like work that, you know, we're like, ugh, I'm suffering through this. I don't want to be doing this right now. It's like, it's like work. Okay? But then if you have justification for that suffering, you get meaning. So that's kind of strange. It's like, how can suffering be a part of meaning? Well, let's look at some examples that he talks about. So think, for example, of a runner, like a runner who wants to run for the Olympics. Okay. Let's say they want to run the 1500 meter. Well, what they do is they train and they train and they train. They wake up at 6 a.m. Maybe they're running four times a week for months and months and years. And they are eating a certain way where they can eat a lot of the foods that they used to enjoy and really, really, really working hard, okay? And, and maybe in the moment they want to sleep in. Maybe in the moment they want to eat, you know, a food that they're not supposed to eat, like ice cream or chocolate or that's not part of their workout diet. But they 
No, no, no. They wake up early, they get out of bed, and they keep training, training, training. And then you ask them, you say, you know, why are you getting out of bed so early? Why are you running? Like, that's so uncomfortable, and you can't even eat all these foods I'm eating. And they tell you, well, this brings me so much meaning. Like, it forms part of my identity as a runner. And this kind of highlights the formula that Viktor Frankl is is supporting, meaning equals suffering plus justification, where he's saying that you need, so, so where's the suffering? The suffering is the waking up early, the running, the pushing, pushing, pushing when, when you want to stop, okay? It's like, it's hard. That's like suffering. And then it's also like the not being able to eat the foods that you want to eat or being able to see the friends that you want to see because you have to train, okay? But the justification for that is that all of this is going to help you achieve your dream of being an Olympic runner. And it's the same thing for marathon runner and really any other Olympic sport or, or any like seriously competitive sport. So what's interesting is for somebody who didn't have the passion to be an Olympic runner, all of this training would be really, really like suffering and frustrating. But when you justify the suffering, you have meaning. And this is the same thing for our work. So a lot of us, I don't want to say a lot of us, some of us feel like we're suffering in work. Like we don't want to get up early. We don't want to drive to the office. You know, if you, I mean, a lot of the work is remote right now, but like we don't want to log in. We don't want to respond to more emails. And it's like, ugh, this is suffering. But then if you add justification to that, like, you know, this is helping me have an income, helping me raise the family, or I'm doing this because I'm really curious, for example, like a researcher. Like, I spend a lot of hours reading articles and writing articles and making figures and looking at data because I want to uncover a protein, like the way that the protein interacts, or I want to find a new drug. Um, for a certain like cancer, or I want to understand what happens in the cell during this disease. Okay, the justification there is the curiosity to learn. So, so if you're not, what I'm saying here is if you don't find justification for the work, for example, if you're not doing the work because you're really interested in it, or because you're really curious about it, and you want to find the solution, or you're very motivated by it, like it excites you, then that's going to be suffering. But if you can find a justification for the work, then it brings you meaning. Okay. And the same thing goes for our relationships. So a lot of us don't recognize how important relationships are to our health, to our well-being, to our life satisfaction. Okay. So we like so much work. It's like, I have to talk to this person for hours every day. I have to work to understand them. I have to hold them when they're sad. Okay. If you don't see a justification for doing this, for example, like a shared goal of living together and building a beautiful life and a family together, then that can seem to you like suffering. Like, oh my gosh, why do I have to put in all this work? Okay. But if you see a justification for it in the sense that, wow, if I do all this work, I can feel good knowing that I'm in a stable, committed relationship and have, you know, an improved life satisfaction because I'm happy because I'm so grateful that I have somebody that I can share my life with, then you get meaning, okay? And 
a way that you can do that is by looking at your expectations, like with you and your partner, by talking about your needs, wants, and expectations from them, like, sorry, with them, you can understand what you need to do, the work that has to be done to, to satisfy those needs, wants, and expectations. But also the justification is, is making those expectations a reality. So for example, let's say that your partner is talking to you, you know, they say like, I want you to speak with me every day. I want us to have breakfast together every morning. And I want us to spend time together to just be present with each other and share feelings about our day. Okay, so that's the need and that's the expectation. But think about it. The justification for putting in all those hours is that you get to have somebody who you can be close to, who you can trust, you can be present with and fully engaged with and feel really good around. You know, a lot of people are really lonely. And talking about loneliness, I think it's really interesting that so many people are lonely because if like only a couple people were lonely, then you'd think like, okay, most people have friends and, you know, sorry, close connections. And then, you know, there's a few people who are lonely because the people who have connections are all taken with other connections. But if so many people are lonely, then it's like, what? How can so many people be lonely? That means that a lot of people aren't like, are not feel, you know, full with other connections with people. So that's, that's the thing. It's like, People, I think, sometimes see work, like having to engage with others, having to ask them how they're doing, wish them happy birthday, check in with them. It's work. But I mean, if you can find justification for doing all that work, for example, like you can agree on a future that you want to build or a future that you want to see together and understand the work that has to be done to get there, then all of that work turns to meaning and gives you a lot of fulfillment because you you have a goal essentially and that work can help you reach your goal. Now a problem that I see today in society is that people think that all suffering is bad and yes intentionally causing someone else to suffer is bad okay but there are a lot of benefits to suffering. And I want you to think about this with the example of an entrepreneur, okay, who wants to start a company and they work, 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 and they spend hours, you know, staying up late sometimes. I really advocate, by the way, on the show to get enough sleep. Adults, that's eight hours a night, nine of which you should be in bed so that you can be sleeping for eight of them if you're younger or older. Um, it's even more. Um, but I'm just saying, like, somebody would think of this and say, oh my God, they are suffering. Why are they doing so much work? But the thing is, guys, that if, if you can do this work, okay, you can, and you find, first off, you can find joy and fulfillment in it and that it gives you something to do, but also it creates meaning because suddenly this company now gives you meaning. It's like, wow, I have something going for me. I have something that I can pour my heart over, like as well outside of my relationship, something that I can spend thinking about. I feel like my life has something that makes me matter, something that I'm needed for. That's really nice to feel like you're needed for something or to be able to grow something. And so, so that's the thing. If we think that all negative feelings have to be avoided, then we can never succeed in building a company or we can never succeed in being present with our partners. Yeah, like a lot of people say, why should I be in a relationship? Why should I commit? Because people 
are difficult sometimes, there's fights sometimes, and like, yeah, totally, you know, sometimes it's hard. But if you can get through the hard parts, the good parts of having somebody close to you that you can trust, be engaged with, and share your life with, and, and have commit to you and be able to commit to is so beautiful because it allows you to make a strong foundation together that can then help you succeed in everything else that you do in your life. And that's just a big, a big thing that I want to point out there is that just because something causes, let's say, temporary suffering or not even suffering, just like bad feelings, it doesn't make it bad. And I think in society today, we have this like, all pain is bad, all suffering is bad. And yes, like, okay, if it's not necessary and you can't find justification for it, then it's bad. I'm not saying that you should intentionally cause suffering to anyone else that is not ethical or to yourself. But if, like, what I'm just saying is there are positive benefits as well of doing some things which feel, don't feel good in the short term. Because often, the best things in life, guys, are hard, and they don't feel good at the beginning. Like going to the gym every day. If you're just starting, it's hard. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Okay, you're like, I'd rather stay home. I'd rather watch TV. I'd rather, I don't know, like, I'd rather just stay in bed. Okay, and maybe at the beginning, it feels bad. But then once you start going, you are going to feel so much better in the long run. This reminds me of an idea um, that was presented to me by Jordan Peterson in his book, 12 Rules for Life, where he talks about people being a sculpture. So you can think of yourself as a sculpture, okay? And how is a sculpture made? Well, first, it's just a slab of stone, okay? It's just like a rectangle of stone. And what the sculpture does when he, when he makes it is he takes a hammer and he takes like a, like a, um, like a pointy edge tool and he hits the hammer and the tool to break pieces off the stone, breaking it, breaking it, breaking it. And every time they remove a piece of stone, it's, it's like, you know, you could think about it. If you were, if you were the stone, it might be painful. Like if somebody came and saw the sculptor, breaking off stones, you know, hitting something with a hammer again and again and again. They might be like, oh my gosh, you're destroying it. It's like, what are you doing? You're really destroying that. Like, why are you hitting it so hard? Why are you chiseling it away and breaking pieces off? You know, that was such a nice rectangle and you're ruining it. They might even think it's violent. Like, what the heck? You know, why are you doing that? It's, it's like, you shouldn't be breaking that. You shouldn't be hitting it. But then what they don't see is after you break off the right pieces, okay, you end up with a very, very beautiful sculpture. And you can look at like Rodin or, or other famous sculptors. Um, that's what they do. You hit it, hit it, hit it. And then it becomes beautiful. And what I, what I mean by this is you shouldn't, like I'm not saying hitting. No, 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 no. What I'm saying instead is that you can think about each of these chiseled pieces as a difficult life experience, okay? Or like a something that causes a bit of a struggle, something that's challenging, something that can cause maybe a little bit of suffering at the beginning, okay? It's hard. It's like, it's hard at the, when, when the stone is being chiseled. But then, it's like you're being sculpted. Through these difficult experiences and these challenges, you can grow 
and you can learn and you can achieve really, really wonderful things. It's like that running. It's hard to get up early, but if you just keep doing it, to keep training, if you keep pushing, okay, it's hard, it's hard. But you can achieve amazing, amazing things in fitness and health and also in success, like being able to run races. Um, and it feels really good to be active. And all of this, in a sense, is like becoming sculpted. It's like you're taking those pieces of the stone off to make a beautiful sculpture. But if our whole life we're scared of challenges, we're scared of, of, of pain, okay, we can never get sculpted and we'll be like that rectangle slab of stone the, the whole life, okay? But as we take on challenges, as we take on a bit of suffering, okay, to justify and create meaning with, um, we can get sculpted and become a very, very beautiful sculpture. So just to think about it, I think, like, not to try to avoid pain completely, but to try to do things that are difficult or may cause a little bit of suffering, um, you know, like going to the gym at the beginning helps you achieve really, really great things later on in life. So same thing with our partners. Remember, struggle is one of our phases of the relationship. As the hormones start to wear off, the gas is running low in the tank. We have to learn how to add real gas, real value to our partners. And it's hard. It's really hard to do that at the beginning. But as we learn to do it, guys, okay, suffering a little bit, we're just, okay, the justification is the ability to build a great relationship. And we see what we get from that is meaning, meaning in having a fulfilled relationship with our partners, okay? Where we can grow, um, learn to love our partners, from that learn to love the world, okay? And learn to understand each other better because as we learn to talk to our partners, to help our partners with experiences that they're going through and reflect on ideas with our partners, we also learn how to better love and engage with the world. So my my message for you in this episode is to really try to find meaning in suffering, okay? Find meaning in suffering. You can think of it kind of like a heart rate, okay? If it, like a, like a heart rate on a monitor, on a like EEG monitor or something. No, ECG, electrocardiogram, sorry, ECG. It goes down and then it goes up, okay? And then it comes down again and goes up. There's like the B wave and sorry, I'm like... Okay, but the big idea here is that if it's flat all the time, if you're always avoiding things because you don't want to have any pain or suffering or something, it's like not being sculpted. It's flat, guys, and a flat line is equivalent to death. When people are dead, that's what the line looks like, flat, okay? But the ups and downs in life make us live, okay? Living, ups and downs. So just feel comfortable not necessarily feel comfortable, but just be ready for some of those downs to get to the ups, okay? And and those downs look like that struggle, okay, in the beginning of the relationship and as our partners change and as our experiences change to get to those ups, which is those really fulfilled moments when we can fully connect to our partners and we feel like we are close to them, someone understands us, and also to our friends. Like, it takes a lot of work at the beginning to build a great friendship. And, you know, that can seem like suffering a bit at the beginning, always having to call, always having to message them, to invite, maybe we get rejected a few times, but eventually we can start to build a great friendship and find the right person, 
okay for us so that we're less lonely and that we feel better. Now, another thing that I want to talk about in this episode is this idea of holding on to things. So, so often experiences come to our lives and we just want to try control, okay? So like we want to control our situation so that we feel comfortable in it. So for example, like our partner comes home from work, we want to know that there's going to like, you know, we want to know what's going on. We want to know what they're going to say, how they're going to act. Um, we want to know, like, if we go to work, we want to know what goes in the meeting. We just want to feel a sense of control. We want to know what time we're going to get to work. We want to know how we're going to feel. We want to know how long we're going to live, you know, um, like what's going to happen next week, next month. Um, if we, you know, we want to feel happy all the time. And the moment that one of those things don't work for us, doesn't happen, then we get kind of sad. Like I find often with people, people are more upset about being scared or being sad than they are about being like sad itself. So for example, like somebody will get sad or they'll get scared or they'll get angry or fearful. Okay. And they'll be more anxious that they're scared than they're anxious for being scared itself. Like for example, the, the, they're more worried about, like, the thought that they're scared causes them more anxiety than the thing that scares them themselves. And this happens when we try to have too much control over a situation. So, for example, if we want to be happy all the time, and then we get sad all of a sudden because, you know, things happen and we can't always be happy um, based on our hormones, how we feel, how we slept enough the night before, like a lot of factors that we can't always control in our life, Okay. I mean, there are things that we can do to increase our likelihood of being happy, but we can't always be happy, okay, because our body just adjusts to things. Our, the, thought of us, the thought of us being sad causes more anxiety than the actual like, thing making us sad, okay? So, so what I'm just saying here is if you try to control your situation all the time, then you may have a lot of anxiety when you realize that you can't always control the outcome, and what do I mean by this? I mean that you should try to think of experiences, emotions, and events more like clouds that pass, okay? If you, had, if you try to always know what cloud is going to come, you're going to feel very anxious because you can't. Clouds just appear sometimes, and you don't know what they're going to look like, okay? Um, but it's the same thing with your emotions. Like, you can't always control what you're going to feel, but you can control how you react to it. So if you feel like very sad one day, that is okay. Don't fight the feeling, okay? So many of us are fighting feelings, fighting experiences because we just feel like we have to act a certain way, okay? That we have to be a certain way, that there's something that's acceptable, for example, that it's not okay to be sad, it's not okay to be hurt, it's not okay to be fearful, Okay? We have to be happy all the time. We have to be perfect all the time. These are things that we think. And then when we're not happy for a moment, we get very anxious because like, we don't want to feel it. But you can't repress feelings, guys. If, if a feeling comes up and you try to push it away, it'll show up in your body. It'll come up again. Feelings are like messengers that are trying to tell us something from our body. Okay, And what message 
does it tell ourselves if we if we keep ignoring feelings? It's kind of like telling our body, you know, you don't matter, your feelings don't matter. And that goes from how to protect our hearts the smart way. And what we talk about on the blog too is if you want other people to treat you well, the first thing you have to do is treat yourself well too. So for example, like if you want other people to consider your thoughts as valuable and your feelings as important, do you treat your thoughts as if they're valuable and do you treat your feelings as if they're important? What message are you telling your body if you ignore your feelings? And, and just really, really what I'm trying to promote here is whenever you feel something, okay, think of it kind of like a cloud. We can use this rain technique, which we mentioned before on the show, but I'll get to it again. It's called recognize, acknowledge, investigate, non-identify. Just recognize, okay, I'm feeling this. Okay, you know, I, I'm feeling it. Acknowledge. Recognize, sorry, recognize. I'm feeling something. Acknowledge. What is it that I'm feeling? Like, is it sadness? Is it grief? Is it happiness? Is it excitement? I acknowledge that I'm feeling something and investigate now. Investigate. What could be causing this feeling? What's this feeling trying to tell me? Not that every feeling is trying to tell us something important. Sometimes our feelings glitch, okay? But just investigate. Is this because I'm not sleeping enough? You know, where is this coming from? What does it feel like in my body? And then non-identify. Look at it like a passing cloud, okay? I'm feeling this now. I'm not going to feel it forever. It's just part of who I am to have these feelings sometimes and just let it go. Just take a deep breath and let it go. If you feel like you have to feel a certain way, then it can be really, really like anxiety, a lot of anxiety if you don't feel like it, okay? Like if, if you don't feel what you expect to feel in, in a moment. But Guys, our feelings are going to glitch. We talked about this in the feelings glitching episodes, okay? We can't always control that, but we can control how we choose to react. Now, if you expect your feelings to glitch sometimes and you expect to feel feelings that you don't expect to feel and they just happen, then that's okay. It's not going to cause so much stress. But if you try to limit your feelings and repress them and only allow feelings that you want to feel to come up, um, then you're teaching your body to ignore something that's so important to it, Okay? And you're ignoring an opportunity as well to learn more about yourself. So just choose choose to feel. And also accept that you can't always control your feelings. And you can't always control the situations around you. But again, you can choose to react how you want to react to them. And you don't have to react to everything. A lot of feelings you can just investigate, acknowledge, recognize, and just let go of them. Okay? And some of them you can think about more. And some, again, you can just take a deep breath, acknowledge that you're feeling them, think about where you're feeling that in your body, share it with your partner because sharing feelings boosts our emotional bank account and makes us feel closer and more engaged together. And then just move on, okay, when you're ready. Now, why did I put this in this episode? I just want to connect everything together here because at the beginning, we talked about a cognitive neuroscience approach to understanding feelings. That's building off the last episode. We talked about that the way we feel in any event is the different components of the, the event, okay, the experience, combined with the associated feelings attached to each of those components, okay? So we give the example with the tree. Walking in a forest, the forest is a component, the trees, the colors, the air, the sun, the sky, the path. If you're with somebody, you know, all of these things are the components, and then we have feelings associated to them based on our life experiences. If we have trauma, it's an associated feeling that's very intense 
Um, and if it affects our ability to engage with everyday life, because for example, the component is like loud noise, um, and we hear loud noise in a lot of places, and we can't leave our house um, because the associated feeling is too strong, that could look like a trauma disorder. Okay, so we talked about that. Then, in the next part, we talked about meaning, and I, I proposed the formula from Viktor Frankl that meaning equals suffering plus justification. What this is trying to do here is to normalize and accept the idea of pain, okay, and suffering being an inevitable part of life, but that we can use to create meaning, because suffering with justification creates meaning, having to wake up early to go to work, to train, to push harder, okay, to be present with our partners, even if we're tired and we'd rather go to bed, to listen, to write a book, okay, when we could be doing something else, but, you know, we have to just sit down and write. All of this, guys, when there's a purpose to doing it, like building a stronger relationship with our partner, being more present with their children, or making the book in our heads a reality, creates meaning, guys, okay? So if you always try to avoid any sort of pain or suffering, you can't have meaning. What I encourage you is to try create meaning in the suffering that you have in your life by finding justifications for it, specifically those involving the interaction with your partner. So if your partner is asking you to do something, guys, and you think it's suffering, it's bothering you, like you really just don't want to unload the dishwasher, you really just don't want to do housework, or you don't want to talk to them, or you don't want to hear what they have to say, or you don't want to help them when they're sad, remember, guys, create justification. The justification being that you can have a healthy, fulfilled, and happy relationship when your partner with your partner being engaged with you and you feeling comfortable being engaged with them, being more present, guys, and just being closer together, more fluid, okay? That justification is suddenly going to turn that suffering into meaning because next time your partner comes to you sad, it's all about perspective. You're going to see it as an opportunity to be closer to them and more engaged with them, okay? So the perception of pain being a problem, like this... This is a problem. So see, see suffering as a way to create meaning. Finally, we talked about the idea of having to feel certain ways. So like, for example, if you're always thinking that you have to be happy, okay, then, you know, if you're sad, you're going to be more anxious about the thought of you being sad than the thing that's making you feel sad in the first place. And if there's one message I can really promote from the the feelings uh, don't have IQ episode, feelings glitch when we don't take care of ourselves. In that episode, we explored how we feel bad more when we don't take care of ourselves and we're bad at determining which component, okay, so we talked about this components, okay, from the neuroscience, which component is causing the negative feeling, okay, we're not good at this, um, so we may blame our partner, even though the component is that we're hungry or that we're tired, but we actually, you know, we just blame our partner because it's more convenient. Um, so we talked about this. Um, but just to recognize, guys, another thing here that's so important is to recognize that it's okay to feel sad, angry, scared, lonely. Okay, any feeling that you can think about, it is okay to feel them. It's just part of life. And we can't always control when we feel them, but we can choose how we react, okay? If we choose to always recognize, acknowledge the feeling, investigate where it's coming from, and non-identify with it, 
Recognize that we have the feeling now, but the feeling doesn't make up the entire component of who we are. It's just a feeling and it passes. Okay, that's a really more positive, easier way to engage with your feelings because then you can think about them as opportunities to learn and recognize that you don't have to control them, guys. When we try to control things that we can't actually control because it's not our place to control them or it's just not possible to control them, we can create a lot of unnecessary stress for ourselves. Okay, so just remember two things there. The first is that you can't always, you can choose to feel, but you can't always choose what you're going to feel. But you don't have to react to all the feelings that you get. Remember, love is commitment in spite of feelings glitching sometimes. Feelings glitch when we don't take care of ourselves. Feelings don't have IQ, and it's hard for us to know which component is causing the feeling. But the, the weights, again, too. So if we're always looking for negative, we're going to see negative. If we look for positive, we're going to see the positive and notice it. Okay, just remember that as well. And remember, again, we're bad at determining which component caused the feeling. So you think it's your partner, but really it's that you're hungry, really it's that you're tired. Just be aware of that. Lots more on our blog, learnlove.ca slash blog, on the Cognitive Neuroscience article, and some more articles on feelings coming your way. One last thing that I want to just point out is with all of this is that we and our partners, guys, we see the world very, very differently based on our own lived experiences. Our experiences growing up, our genes, and a whole bunch of other things are going to determine the feelings that we associate with different components in our life. Okay, And what this means is that no two people are going to experience the same event in exactly the same way. This is why in court cases, you have witnesses okay, for a crime, and all the witnesses give a very different story, even though they all watched it. Okay, And it's the same with our partners, guys. Again, you can't assume you know what your partner is going to say or how your partner feels until you ask. Okay, Don't assume, because the problems we make in our head often don't exist in real life. And the other thing, guys, is because we see the world so differently, we're going to have very different needs to our partners. So you don't want to just project all of your needs okay, onto them because maybe their needs are very, very different. And again, guys, you can't change your partner's needs so much. Like if your partner needs something and it's very important to them, don't just assume that your need will suffice, Okay. Instead of having to project our needs onto our partner and trying to control, remember, when we try to control things that we can't control, it makes so much stress, so much burden. Instead of trying to control and project, we can just be sensitive, guys. It takes a lot of sensitivity and awareness to be a good partner, to be sensitive to the needs of our partners. And instead of having to be right, okay, feeling like we have to know the answer all the time because we have to be perfect or just feeling that we have the same needs or being too scared to talk about it. Remember that the partner is going to have different needs to us and we can be sensitive to try and uncover their needs and be accepting of them because we want our partner to accept us fully for who we are, right? And we want Right, so, so we should accept them for who they are. And luckily, everyone is different and everyone has their own needs or else the world would be a much more boring place. And the same thing goes with change. So just be perceptive to how ch needs change over time by having conversations, checking in, asking how it's going and recognizing that feelings change, okay? Um, based on components, we put different weights on them and the weights that we put on feelings will largely determine what we see.
in the world. So look for good in others, and you will find good in them. Look for bad in others, and you will find bad in them. Expect to feel bad from them, and trust me, you will feel bad from them. Expect to feel good from them, and trust me, again, you will find reasons to feel good around them. Again, there are some extreme examples, okay, which I'm not going to get into, like on, on abuse and trauma, um, and which this last thing about expecting to feel may not apply um, fully, but the principle still holds. So try to look for the good in others, try to expect to feel good in others, and act. Remember those mirror neurons to model what you want to see. Come with a smile, look for goodness, expect to feel good, like in a loving way, and then I mean, don't have too high expectations that are completely unreasonable and unrealistic. We can talk about that more in the next episode. But what I just mean is like, if you come in saying, this is going to suck, it's probably going to suck. Like come in saying, I'm going to make this good. Smile, model what you want to see, look for good in them, and you will find good. Remember the lenses that we see the world by, okay? Largely influenced by the associated feelings and components we choose to notice. Um, We'll get more into that in future. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode. We went through a lot of content all about feelings, meaning, suffering, pain, and trying to control the feelings that we experience, saying that we can't control the feelings we get, but we can choose how to react to them. And finally, encouraging us to all be more sensitive to our partner's needs and just trying to notice them, okay? Trying to uncover them because we don't always know Okay, and honestly, you can't know until you ask and be open to them changing too, because that makes life more exciting. If you want to hear more from us, check out some other episodes on our podcast, the Learn to Love podcast. If you want to read from us, you can check out our blog, learnlove.ca slash blog uh, for pictures, analogies, and lots of nice text. If you want to watch, we have a YouTube channel, Learn to Love on YouTube. Check out some videos with some cool footage there. Like we'll talk about a couple hangout together and talking, and then there'll be a video of a couple talking. We have lots of clips. I think it's really cool. I hope you enjoy that. Um, If you want to engage with us on social media, I'd love to connect there. You can find us on Learn to Love Media, like L-E-A-R-N number two, L-O-V-E Media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Facebook and learn to love on Pinterest. If you have any feedback or comments on the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at contact at learnlove.ca. I read all the emails that we get and can't wait to see what you have to say. And finally, check out our Udemy course, Love Smarter, Not Harder. We have about 70 components to the course and six hours of video. I think the course will take you about a month to complete. Um, But you can just pick anything there that you find interesting. We have quizzes and you can get the course for free on our Instagram. So if you check out our Instagram, Learn to Love Media, and you click on the link in the the description, you can get the course for free. Um, Please let us know your thoughts about it if you try it out. Thank you so much for your time and taking this journey together to build healthier relationships and stronger families, to judge more favorably and be aware of the neuroscience and psychology and other driving forces of our behavior and how we can utilize them to create better, healthier, easier dynamics with those around us. I can't wait to welcome you back in the next episode.